moves in that. Um, I want to start this morning by just giving you a few verses to kind of whet our appetite for where we are going to be going in Thessalonians today. I want to start by a couple verses tremendously familiar with us. Uh, the first one is in James chapter 1, uh, verse 22. And we'll go ahead and we'll put these up for you. James chapter 1, verse 22. It says, but prove yourself to be a doer of the word and not merely a hearer who deludes themselves. Now, that's a very popular verse to us. We all know this verse if we've been in church for very long. And, and I, I always zero in on those words, deluding ourselves. A person who simply hears the word of God but doesn't do the word of God is, is kind of pulling a fast one over on themselves. They're deluding themselves. It goes on in James chapter 2, verse 14. It says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? That's a very good question. Can that faith save him? Then verse 17, it says, Even so, faith, and this is the declaration, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. And then finally, I want to take you to Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, if you would. It says, so whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. You see, Christianity is not simply a set of beliefs. Christianity isn't just about our theology, our doctrinal statement. It's not just about our understanding of God and, and everything that God has done. Christianity is supposed to be life-changing. Matter of fact, it is tremendously practical. It is something that's supposed to touch the, the person. Again, not just the head, but the heart. Now we're going to be going to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. You can go ahead and be turning there. We're going to be reading that in, in just a moment. But I, I came across a statement as I was looking through various commentaries and to see you know, what they say as I was studying this. And, and I came across a, a statement in a commentary. It said this. It says, It has been said that Christianity is a shoe leather faith. Christianity is a shoe leather faith. Now the first thing I asked myself is, who said that? I, I don't even know what that means. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really big into, you know, pithy little sayings and everything like that that help us visualize things. But, I mean, how many of you here have ever heard that Christianity is a shoe leather faith? Anybody? Evidently nobody here ever said it, you know, in Ohio. So I had to look it up. What does that mean? And, and you know, it is really rich and very deep. What it means, what it means is Christianity is a shoe leather faith. It means that what we believe touches the earth. Isn't that great? What we believe touches the earth. We, we might say in layman's terms that that's where the rubber meets the road, where our faith touches the earth. It's practical. Our theology is what we see that the Bible says about God. It's what we believe. But our testimony is what others see in us. And our testimony is how other people see us living our beliefs. Now, there are many things in Scripture that we talk about, many things that are mysteries in our faith. And we talk about the resurrection. 
And, I mean, this glorious event where no matter, you know, when, if you're a believer, and when you have died, you know, the body goes into the grave, but the soul and spirit is ultimately going to be resurrected, and we're going to be given new bodies. Folks, that's a mystery. I don't understand that. I have nothing to compare that to. We talk about heaven and the glories of heaven. We talk about the working of Holy Spirit, that when you become a Christian, that God takes residency in your life. The Holy Spirit is given to you. That's a mystery. It, you know, something I can't explain. The incarnation, how Jesus Christ could be fully God and fully man come to this earth. We look at the prophecies of the Old Testament and, and the end time events that are supposed to be coming, uh, you know, soon or very soon, we ask. And all of these are important. They're important truths. They're important knowledge. But they were never meant to simply be lived out in our head. Something that I understand. You know, something that I just say, I believe. You know, they are supposed to be not just celebrated for one hour a week on Sunday morning. But each and every truth in God's word is meant to touch our lives. It's meant to challenge and change the way we live. It's made to affect the other 167 hours of the week that we aren't in church. And so to that end, I want to take you to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. And I'm going to look at some of the rubber meeting the road, where the, you know, the, the shoe leather aspects of our faith are going to be talked about here. And if you would, if you'd stand together with me as... We read the word of God. We're beginning in verse 9, and, and we're just going to go about four verses here, down to verse 12. It says, Now as to the love of the brother, and you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you do practice it towards all brethren who are in all of Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly towards the outsiders and not be in any need. Amen. You may be seated. <coughs> so I got I to gotta tell you, if you thought coming today to church that you were going to get some earth-shaking new revelation or, or, or new challenge, you know, something to you know, take away from him, man, I never, never really thought about that. I need to apologize to you. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry, you're not going to get that today. What God has for you today, what God has for me today is a reminder, a challenge to us to live out our faith in an everyday practical way. Matter of fact, in those verses that we read here, there are four practical actions of our faith that he talks about here. And this is an, an exclusive list. But for whatever reason, he, he needed to emphasize this to the church at Thessalonica. But he gives very practical actions of our faith. First of all, he says, love your fellow Christian. Second thing, he says, lead a quiet life. Third thing, he says, mind your own business. And the fourth thing, he says, you need to be productive. You need to be productive. So I, I want you to, as we're going to look at those four things, I want you to, to think of those things in terms of your testimony. Okay, your testimony, remember, is what others see when they look at your life. What, what does your life actions and choices and all priorities, all of those things, what does it tell other people? Don't look at this in terms of your theology, but the practicality of your faith. 
What do non-believers see in your life? How is your life setting an example for other believers to follow and, and challenging them? So with that, very simply here, and, and again, we're not going to touch very long on, and, on any of these, because um, we know these things, but they're reminders to us. Number one, it says, love your fellow Christian. Number one, very practical in our faith, our shoe leather faith, where the rubber meets the road, is a love for fellow Christians. That's, that's those who are here. Other believers, when you come into contact with them in the world, believers that are in your family, love your fellow Christians. And I love the way that he, he gives that statement in verse 9. It says there in verse 9, it says, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Now that's an interesting statement. Basically what that is saying here is that even if this truth wasn't written, even if God doesn't all through the New Testament talk about how we're supposed to love one another, even that, if that truth wasn't written as kind of a command of God, He's saying there a genuine believer has this ingrained in their DNA to love their fellow Christians, their other spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, again, let's read it. It says, now as to love the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. In other words, we don't really need to give you a command on this, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Even if it wasn't written, even if I didn't tell you, you, God is teaching you. It's in your DNA. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that God is doing, which in every single believer's heart, to bring this un, unnatural, this, this supernatural love for other Christians. Now, this doesn't mean that Christians don't have disagreements. This doesn't mean that Christians don't have problems. But in a true Christian's life, we are drawn to work towards love. We are drawn towards love for one another. That is the work that God is doing within us. That is the, the DNA the Holy Spirit places within us to help us to love one another. Um, you know, the, uh, again, there, there's no justification in our faith for not doing whatever it takes to work towards love. We'll have disagreements. We might have big disagreements. We might have big falling outs. But in a true Christian's life, that isn't going to sit well with us to have a division with another believer. And within us, we're, it's just, it's just, it's just going to be there, and we're going to need to take care of it, you know, to work towards love. And God has given us all of the tools to do this. He's given us forgiveness and grace and mercy. In Matthew 18, it, it tells us how we're supposed to work out, you know, conflicts with brothers and going and talking to them directly and then taking some of them with you and, and, you know, working towards, you know, coming together. And then all through Scripture, he, he has this one on us. He reminds us, and remember how much I forgave you. <laughs> you know, that when we're called to forgive somebody who maybe has done something towards us. So again, this is so basic, but I want to ask you this. Is this your testimony? Is this the testimony of your life? When others describe you, do they notice this weird love bond that you have for the church, for other believers in Jesus Christ? Brothers and sisters. I mean, do you get together at work in the break period and you pull out your wallet? Let me show you pictures of my, my spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ. And, or do you talk about activities that you did openly? 
I mean, just like you talk about other events, talk about things that you did with the, you know, the body of Christ or things that are happening within the church or, or praises that God you know, has, has brought. Are you speaking highly of, of the church and, of, again, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ? Is, you know, this, this is in our DNA, and this is what God, if he hadn't said anything, he said, I'm, I'm working this in your heart. You know, this is down to earth. This is very practical. But the question is, is it our, is it our testimony? It's not what we want. What do other people see in us? Are we living this truth? Second practical action of our faith. It tells us to seek to live a quiet life. Seek to live a quiet life. In, in verse 11 there, the very first part of that verse, it says that make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. And I love the way that it puts it there. Make it your ambition. I mean, that's what he wants to have, not just... If you're a Christian, your life should be quiet. Said, Make it your ambition. This is what we're striving towards. I mean, things like strife and discord, drama, that shouldn't be a pursuit. That shouldn't be our ambition in those areas. You know, don't love the drama. You know, we should be, we should be working. God has given us the ability, whatever circumstances that we are in, to, to have a quietness about us. Again, it doesn't say you won't have chaos. He says, but in the midst of it, wherever you are, pursue to calm the situation down. Don't ramp it up. You know, I remember uh, years ago, and, and I may have shared this before, one of the first years that I was a uh, pastor here, about 22, almost 23 years ago, um, a gentleman started coming to the church, and, and a little older gentleman, and he, he came about two or three weeks, and then he asked if he could meet with me in my office. So I said, sure. So we, we met together in the office, and he began to ask me questions, a little bit weird questions, you know, like he asked about our congregational meetings. And he says, do you guys, you know, what are your congregational meetings like? Do, do, do you argue a lot? Do you fight a lot? Do you get, you know, I'm thinking, oh, he's, you know, he wants to make sure that, you know, we get along with each other. And so, you know, I'm, I'm telling him, uh, I spoke very honestly. I've never been part of a congregational meeting where, you know, I was embarrassed when I went away from it. We've disagreed, and, but, you know, there's been pretty much a calmness and everything, and and, and so I, I answered that. I thought I answered this question really well. He looks at me and says, ah, oh, you don't want me here. He says, I'm a fighter. <laughs> I honestly, honestly, I wish I could think quicker. But I, I said to him, no, you're right. We don't want you here. You know, you're a fighter. Fine. I wish we would have said, how about if you change and you learn to pursue peace? And to leave, live that quiet life, not to pursue discord. And I, I've never had anybody tell me, you know, in, in a way of, in, in, of a testimony, I'm a fighter. I, I just want to fight. The, group, the root of this Greek word for quiet life, it has the idea of peace. And, and, and there's so many verses. I just looked up, you know, and Googled, you know, the, you know, the peace of God. And I mean, it must have been hundreds of verses all through Scripture. Let me just give you a whole bunch of them. Um, that talk about this peace that God says we're supposed to have, this quietness. It says in Jude chapter 1, verse 2, it says, May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Second Thessalonians 3.16, Now may the, Lord, may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstances. Peace, quiet in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, 
to which indeed you are called in one body and be thankful. I mean, the peace of Christ ruling your heart, let that you know, be what's controlling and guiding your life. Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Help me finish this. What does it say in verse 7? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will transform your hearts and your minds. This is what we're drawn to. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barriers of the dividing wall. John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives you do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And then finally, in John chapter 16, verse 33, it says, These things I have spoken to you so that you may have peace. In the world, you're going to have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. You see, very simply put, the closer we draw to Christ, the Prince of Peace, the more we draw to Christ, the greater our peace will be during times of turmoil. I think we could probably all agree today that you don't have to look very far in our country to find turmoil. You don't have to look very far to find a, a disquietedness that is around us. It can be in politics. It can be in rioting over social issues. There is such an anger, there is such a hatred that is so prevalent out there. And it is so easy to get sucked into this, sucked into the turmoil, you know, there, because there's emotion and there's, there's passion involved in it. But remember the words. If you're a Christian, God is working within you, and he wants you to make it your ambition, your desire, you know, to, to live in peace, to live a quiet life. And when we are involved in turmoil, if we get involved in some hot, button issues like politics or social issues, you know, talking about abortions, abortion, abortion, racism, sanctity of marriage. As we do those things as Christians, we're supposed to have a Christ-likeness as we enter into those arenas. I, I want to read some verses for you. This is when Christ was walking here in his three-and-a-half-year ministry. He's coming towards the end of his ministry. We're not, we're not going to put these verses up here for you because I just want to read them. It says when the days, I'm in Luke chapter 9, it says when the days were approaching for his ascension, Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him because he was traveling towards Jerusalem. So in other words, here's Jesus. He's up in Galilee. And he wants to go down to Jerusalem. And in between there is a big region known as the Samaritans. Now, you could go all the way around it, but that takes a lot longer. So Jesus is cutting right through Samaria to get to Jerusalem. But the problem is when he makes arrangements at one of the villages, they find out it's Jesus, and they found out that they're going to Jerusalem, that they're Jews. And so they refuse to even welcome them, refuse to let them have any supplies, you know, Find a place to, to, to sleep that night. So Jesus, here he is, he is facing racism. And, and quite honestly, we would look at this circumstance and we would say the Samaritans were wrong. 
The Samaritans hated the Jews. The Jews hated the Samaritans, back and forth. But, but Christ wasn't showing racism, but the Samaritans were. And so, you know, they deny him access and supplies in their town. And so it says in verse 54, it says, when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? I mean, how often have we entertained similar thoughts like that in the midst of the turmoil our country is going through? It would just be nice. God, just get them out of the way, Lord. You want us to do that? You want us to, to call fire down upon them? Verse 55. But Jesus turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. Folks, I, I have lost sleep over the state of the affairs in our country. I mean, my blood has boiled over some issues. And at those times, I realize that my heart is wrong when that happens. And when that turmoil is there. And I need to put less of the world's words in my mind and my heart. And I need to put more of Christ's voice into my heart. And we're not saying we avoid these areas. But again, remember, you know, chapter, chapter 5, or excuse me, chapter 4 of Thessalonians, it dealt with our sanctification, that we are set apart, that we are supposed to be different than the world around us. And we don't avoid these areas, but we are to be different as we enter them. And, and, and people should be able to see us dealing with life with a peace and a quiet in our, in our hearts. That's a testimony. And that, that speaks to other people about our God and who he is and the genuineness of him in our heart. Okay, let's move on to number three. And I love this one. Again, I'm going to add, I'm going to uh, translate a little bit for you. But number three, attend to your own business or mind your own business. Basically, that's what it's saying there. In verse 11 again, it says, and make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business. In other words, what this is saying is don't be a busybody. It has the idea of sticking your nose into other people's affairs that are uninvited. That's, that's the whole gist of what this is talking about here. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 13, it talks about you know, a group of people, and it says, at the same time, they also learn to be idle, and they go around from house to house, and not merely idle, but they also gossip and busybodies, talking about things not proper to mention. We all know the situation. Have you heard about Fred and Jennifer? Man, their, their son. Can you believe the clothes he wears? Can you believe the, you know, how he acts? They need to. They need to discipline him. They need to, you know. I mean, and on and on it goes. Have you heard about so and so? Oh, their marriage and all the problems that they're having. It's so easy for us to be a busybody in, 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 in other people's affairs. God says, don't be that. Don't be that busybody. Number four, this is an interesting one. It says, work with your hands. It says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, attend to your own business, and work with your hands, just as we commanded you. Now, you've got to ask yourself, why in the world is he telling them to work with their hands? Well, if you understand the Greeks who were ruling at that time, the Greeks believed that manual labor was beneath them. Matter of fact, it, it was for servants, you know, people that were, were lowly, 
They believe that their education and their ability to, to talk in philosophies, that these things were more important than digging in and working and getting your hands dirty. And if you think about it, to some degree, we have that in our culture today. You know, we have educated elitists that are looking down, thinking they're, you know, they have greater value than someone who, you know, has a manual job, who gets their hands dirty. You know, he's saying, don't, you know, don't, don't make it your goal to not work. You work with your hands. I love what Chuck Swindoll once uh, said. He said, you need to get your education and then get over it. You know, get your education and then get over it. Because there is something natural, there is something genuine about working with your hands. And, and, and in some ways, you know, again, and I'm just postulating here, it kind of gives us an approachability. You know, a level of a genuineness, a, a down to earth. To be able to, you know, to go and, and to serve. And again, we don't know the exact reason Paul had to remind these Christians of this. Perhaps there were some in their midst that, that could be and should be working, but they weren't. And they were living off the goodness of other believers. We're not sure what it is. But again, he tells us it's very, very important that when, when people look at you, they see a servant. They see someone who is down to earth, who, who is willing to work. And then kind of verse 12 puts us all in perspective here as we come towards the end. It says, so that you will behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. Behave properly towards outsiders. It's all about our testimony. What do people outside of what we talk about and what we say, what do other people see of us? What do they see in the world? You know, our testimony amongst believers. You see, our faith is practical. Our faith needs to be livable today. It should touch every single area of our life. You know, the things that we come and we study about heaven and about the end times and about what Christ has done, all of those things should make an impact. They should change the way I go to work. They should change the way I interact with my neighbors or when I'm with the unsaved people or when I'm with believers. It needs to be touching our lives. It is visible. Our faith is not just what we say, but in the difference that it makes in our life. And God's simple call to us today is to go home, go to work tomorrow, go to school tomorrow, whatever it might be, and live your faith. Live your faith in a down-to-earth way. Show love to other Christians. Let other people know that, man, you know, that guy's a Christian because I can see the way he speaks about other Christians and about how he uplifts them and how, you know, he reaches out to them. Let others see your faith leading to a quiet life. That they can see peace in your life, not the turmoil that, that, that they're living every day. Don't be known as a busybody. You know, and, and, and be a servant. I think we all agree, wouldn't that be a testimony? Wouldn't that be something for people to say this of my life, of your life? To these would be benchmarks of, of each and every one of us of our faith. Let's commit this to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for the simplicity of your word today. And Father, there's no fireworks going off you know, uh, you know, because this is such earth-shaking truth. But Father, it is life-changing truth. And I ask you for us to search our hearts. God, where we need to 
maybe shore up one of these areas we need to focus where we have been worn down by the world, God, we confess to you and we ask you to forgive us. Draw us to yourself and to your word. Might it be truly said of us that, you know, we don't need to hear these things in the word because you are working these things already within our hearts. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your word and for the power, Father, through your Holy Spirit to go out and live it today. We pray these things in thy son's name.